Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia at 9.30 and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings. We hope you'll be able to join us, but in the meantime, enjoy this recording of last week's message. I was thinking about how we use the word lucky in our, in our language. We, we say it a lot, right? Not even meaning to, not even, even if you believe in luck or don't believe in luck, a lot of times you'll just be like, oh, good luck with that, you know, when you just kind of mean like, hey, I hope you have good luck with this thing. So we talk about good luck, right? And then we talk about bad luck, right? You, you missed a shot in, in the game. Oh, bad luck, man. Oh, that was unlucky. It hit off the goalpost or it, like all that stuff. Oh, that, that didn't work out for you. Bad timing on it. That was unlucky. We talk about good luck and bad luck. We, we kind of use that in, in culture, in, in regular language all the time. We, we say things like, um, like we have a cereal called Lucky Charms, like which when I, I feel lucky when I see them in my house, so I understand because it's like twice a year I get those, and they are like magically delicious. So I'm like, that's cool that we get those. I feel so lucky. Um, we say that, and I, and I think about it like, what do we actually mean when we say luck? When we say something's good luck or bad luck? What, what we're kind of saying is, there's like this unseen cosmic force that was conspiring against you or for you in the circumstances. We, we don't know what it is, we can't explain it, but things all kind of worked together in, in this larger, something bigger than you kind of worked for you or against you. And we just kind of call that luck. You might, in the, in the ancient world, you might have said this is like the fate or like the gods. Like you might have said the gods are conspiring against me or they're for me or whatever. But that's kind of what we mean when we say luck. We're talking about some, some unseen cosmic force. Um, I don't believe in luck. Not really. doesn't mean I won't say good luck sometimes. But I don't really believe in it. I think a lot of the things that we think are cosmic coincidences or the things that we call luck are, you know, maybe just coincidences and, and they, 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 there's nothing really to it. But I think some of the stuff that we call luck might actually also be God doing something as the unseen mover in, in, in the whole thing. Like, I, I think what we call coincidence might be providence. It might be God's unseen hand who's, who's doing some things and he's pulling some strings. And I bring all that up because we're going to look at the luckiest story in Esther today. And, and, and it is, it's weird all the coincidences that kind of come together in just the, the text that we're going to look at. And, and I want us to see it, and I want us to talk a little bit about how and why God does some of the unseen things. Like, how does he work behind the, the scenes on some things, and then, and then and how do we connect to him in, in that way? And, and does, he, does he work for us in that way as well, even thousands of years later? So let me get you up to speed really quick. I'm, I can't do all of Esther, because as we keep going into this book, this summary would just take forever. But let me just get you up to speed really quickly. Esther is queen of Persia with King Xerxes in about the year 475 BC, roughly. And uh, he's a tyrant, uh, a bad dude. She's, she's a, a pretty good woman, and she's, from the, she's Jewish. Um, and so she's there uh, as the queen in Persia. And um, during this time, the king promotes a guy named Haman to be his number two in command over the kingdom. And Haman's a very prideful dude. And there's a guy named Mordecai who happens, this sounds like a soap opera the more I go into it. There's a guy named Mordecai who's Esther's cousin. And Mordecai refuses to bow down to Haman. And Haman is so prideful that it, everybody in the world can bow down to him. But if there's one person that doesn't, it bothers him. And Haman was so bothered by the fact that Mordecai would not bow down to him, he goes to the king and says, hey, 
he doesn't just say, I'd like to kill Haman. He said, let's kill all of the Jews. Let's kill all his people. And he didn't really tell, he didn't tell the king that it was the Jews that he wanted to kill. He just said, there's this people group. So the king issues a decree that on a certain day in a certain month, months down the road, um, all the Jews are going to be slaughtered. So there's a group of people that are kind of rising up. We're going to kill all the Jews um, according to the king's decree. Mordecai is mourning about this. He sends a message to Esther, who's in the king's palace, because that's where she lives. She's the queen. He sends a message to her and says, you've got to do something about this. And she says, that's not going to go well if I try to talk to the king. He has people killed. Like, you can't just approach the king and, and ask for whatever you want. And Mordecai's like, this is your moment. This is your chance. Do something. And we, we left it last week with Esther kind of having this hero moment where she stands up and she says, okay, I'll go talk to the king. And if I die, I die. And right after that, she and her uh, servants and attendants that she has with her and, and the Jews in the kingdom, they all start praying for Esther and praying for the situation. And it says they fasted and prayed. They had no food and they prayed and planned for three days. We'll come back to that. But they pray and plan for three days before she makes the approach to, to speak to the king. And then that's where I want to pick it up. And Esther, uh, the book of Esther, chapter 5. Let's jump right in. We're going to cover a lot of ground, so we've got to go. Chapter 5, verse 1. On the third day, third day of praying and fasting, on the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you, even to the half of my kingdom. All right, so Esther approaches. She puts on her good, her good outfit, you know, and she, and she goes to stand in front of the king. She's like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this up. And she's been, praying, she's been uh, fasting, praying, planning for this moment. So she goes there. She stands outside his court. He sees her, and he's like, oh, it's my queen. I like her. Come on in. And there's this thing that if, she, if the king extends to you the golden scepter in his hand, that means he's, you have found favor. If, if he doesn't, you can be killed on the spot. So he, she approaches him. He extends the scepter to her. She touches it, and it's like, oh, okay, we're, we're good here. Everything is fine. And then he says to her, now, I, I think this is a little over the top, but he says to her, hey, you, basically like, you, you're awesome. What do you want? Whatever you want, I'll give you. I'll give you half of my kingdom. Now, this is really lucky on Esther's part that, that he was in a good mood, you know, and that, that went well, that conversation went well, because she approaches and he's like, tell me what you want, what you really, really want. And she's like, I'll tell you what I want, what I really, really want. And like, that was a great, that was a great, that went really well. <laughs> sorry if that's in your head all day. <laughs> uh, sorry about that. Um, and, and, and you would think this is the moment, right? Like, she's been praying for this. She walks in, he's like, I'll give you whatever you want. This is the moment where she would go, I want you to not kill all of my people. Could you, you're going to give me whatever I want, fine. Don't slaughter, let's, let's stop the genocide. Don't slaughter all the Jews. That's not what she says. Verse 4, and Esther said, if it please the king, let the king and Haman, bring that guy, come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. So she slow plays this. She's like, I, I got a banquet. I'm going to throw a banquet for you. It's going to be good. Bring Haman along. And this, after three days of praying and planning, she's, plan she's already planned the banquet because it's today. 
So she's put it all in motion. She goes to him and she says, here's what I really want. I want you to come to this, come have dinner with me. Um, and she slow plays this. Now you might think she got lucky here that the king was in a, a good mood. But I think there's something to this because the plan was already in place before she goes and speaks to him, right? I, I think one of the key ideas for us is that sometimes we need to pray and plan and fast and then we need to take action. We need to move. We need to step out. We need to do something. A lot of people hang out and they wait for God to tell them what to do and God's sitting there going, I'm waiting for you to move. Why don't you get started and step forward and then I'll work in that. And so she makes, a, she, she makes prayers and, and fasts and she makes this plan for this meal Side note, she's got to cook a banquet with her attendants while she's fasting. That's not right. That's not cool. It's like going to the grocery store when you're hungry. Like, that's not a good idea. So she plans this. And she says, come to this banquet. Well, let me, let me summarize the next piece. So the king and Haman come to the banquet, and it's good. And then you've heard the whole thing, like the key to a man's heart is through his stomach or whatever. So it goes really well. The wine is flowing. The food is good. Haman is there. The king is there. The queen is there. It's very, you know, an, an intimate thing, I suppose, with, with, with just them. But they're having this food. And there's a moment during that banquet where the king is feeling, you know, just kind of warm and good. And he's like, this queen's there, and it's going really well. And he, and he looks to her, and he says... Hey, uh, tell me what you want, what you really, really want. And uh, she, he says it again, like he throws the invitation open to her again. And, and this is the moment, right? Like she's pr prayed for this, she's prepared for this, she's planned for this. This is it. The king is handing this to you on a platter. All you have to say is, don't, don't kill all the Jews, that's what I want. She doesn't say that. She slow plays it again. She says, um, what I want is for you to come back to a banquet that I'm going to throw for you tomorrow. We're going to do another one tomorrow night. And the king, you know, in the middle of a banquet, the food is good, the wine is good, the company is good, whatever you're like, I will do this again tomorrow. Yes, this sounds like a great idea. So he does that. Now, the timing of it is weird because something's going to happen. God is going to do something. I, I, I've told you, God's name does not show up in this entire book. But something happens between banquet one and banquet two that we're going to look at. There is some, God is pulling some strings behind the scenes and making something go down here in the night between these two banquets. And that's where I want to I um, I, I pick this up. Look what happens when, when Haman leaves the first banquet, after, uh, chap, chapter, nine, uh, chapter 5, verse 9. And Haman went out that day. So he just finished that banquet. He went out that day joyful and glad of heart. He had some wine. He's feeling good, right? He, came, he, cut, he, he rolled out the bar all liquored up. And he's like, this is great. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. This thing again. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, and all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me as long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Hey, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, 
and he had the gallows made. All right, so Haman rolls out, feeling pretty good, and, and then he sees Mordecai, and he gets ticked again. He's like, that guy won't bow to me, and he's annoyed again, a fresh annoyance about the Jews. He goes home, and he has this party, and he invites some people over, and he's like, hey, come over. And apparently, he goes on and on and on about himself, right? It sounds like the worst party ever. He recounts, like, all his riches, all his sons, his inheritance, hey, also, like, just the most bragging thing, right? He's like, also... Queen had a party just for the king and me. I was the only other person that was allowed to be there. I don't know if you all noticed this, but I'm kind of a big deal. You know, so he kind of does this thing. And then he's like, but Mordecai. And then his wife offers a suggestion and says with the other people, she's like, you know what you should do about Mordecai? Hang that guy. Just build some gallows, have someone build that, and then tomorrow go to the king and just say, hey, is it all right if I hang this guy? He's really annoying. And, 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 and Haman's like, this is a good idea, okay, like, yes, we will do that. So, that. so that's what happens that night. That's the first thing that happens. And then look at chapter 6, starting with verse 1. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. So wait, wait, when does this happen? This happens on that night, that same night between banquet 1 and banquet 2. The king... He can't sleep. We've all been there. We've had that moment. He's awake at 2 a.m. He's having the bout of insomnia. He can't sleep. And so he, he, he asks for a book to be brought to him. Not just any book. He wants the book of all of the great things he has done and all of his memorable deeds, the chronicles of the king. He wants that read to him. There's all sorts of books he probably could have picked from in the, in the palatial uh, library. But what he picked was that book on that night. You're going to see how, how lucky that was that, that he did that. So they, they, they read to him. Uh, start, look at verse 2. And it was found written in that book, it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Xerxes' other name is Ahasuerus. Um, so... Uh, and then in verse 3, and the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said nothing has been done for him. Okay, so wait. He asked for that book on that night with his insomnia to be read to him, and they happened to open it up to that page where it says, hey, there was this guy Mordecai, this was back in the end of chapter 1 of Esther, there was this guy named Mordecai a few years ago, uh, he saved your neck because he told, told you about a plot that was coming against you. And the king hears that in the middle of that night, and he goes, well, man, have we ever done anything for Mordecai? Like, did we get him a gift card to Chili's or something? Like, we've done nothing for this guy? Like, let's, you know, we need to do him a solid. And the king's men who attended him said, no, we, we, never, we never did anything about that. And, and, and in that moment, the king realized, like, man, this guy Mordecai saved my neck. This is really coincidental, isn't it? It's interesting. Uh, verse 4. And the king said, and so sort of morning comes, you know, and the king said, who's in the court? Who's out there right now? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, let him come in. So coincidentally, as luck would have it, 
he has, he has this insomnia. He figures out, oh, we should do something nice for Mordecai. And then in walks Haman that morning. Mordecai's there, or Haman's there to tell the king that he wants to hang Mordecai. And he walks in. Now, both of them got something on their mind. Haman wants to talk about hanging Mordecai. The king wants to talk about how we need to honor Mordecai. One of them's going to speak first and tell what they want to talk about. It happens to be the king. Verse 6. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? So Haman thinks this is about him. The king's like, man, if I want to iron somebody, what should we do? And Haman's like, oh, this is, this is, this is great. Oh, yeah, you want to iron, honor someone? Um, I have a few ideas. Verse 7, and Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor... Let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and then the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor." Haman's like, look, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. We're getting your clothes, your horse, the crown, the whole bit. We're going to parade this guy through the city. And Haman thinks, this is a really good idea. This this is how we're going to honor someone. And then verse 10 happens. The king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. Man, how lucky is Mordecai, right? This is his day. He didn't even know all this is going down at night. This is incredible. All he did was get annoyed with Haman. And, I, and it doesn't tell you what conversation they had after this. But I always wonder, like, did Xerxes go to Haman after he said that? Because you wonder what the look is on Haman's face in that moment. And then, and then did Xerxes say to Haman, like, oh, you also wanted to talk about something. You got anything? And Haman's like... No, I'm I'm good. (laughs) Never mind. It's fine. It's nothing. (laughs) Right? So verse 12. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But so so he does that. He goes parades Mordecai around like like he was told to do. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. It's it's fun to be paraded around, but you got still gotta go back to where you where you're hanging out. Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Zeresh, whose plan was to have Mordecai hang, she's seeing this all go down, and she's like, it ain't looking good for you, bro. <laughs> like, husband, this is, this is not, this is not a, good, a good scene. So let's just recap for a moment. All the lucky coincidences that happen here. Esther prays and and prepares for days. She goes into the king who could have her killed. He says, no, what do you want? She goes, come to a banquet. He goes, great. They go to a banquet. During the banquet, he says, what do you want? I'll give you anything. She says, come to another banquet. In between those two banquets, two things happen. Haman decides to seize Mordecai, gets irritated again, decides to kill him. And then the king has a bout of insomnia and discovers that, that, oh yes, it's Mordecai and we haven't done anything for him. And then the king tells Haman, you got to go honor Mordecai. And and then Haman ends this, 
this, this scene here, this chapter, uh, he's, he's pretty discouraged by the whole thing, and his wife's like, this isn't going well. Either that is an incredible set of luck and coincidences, or God's pulling some strings. Something's going on. It's, it's his providence. It's the unseen hand, an unseen, almost puppet master, is working behind the scenes and making things happen. And, and let me connect that to today and just say this. God has a way of connecting things that, they, that seem like they're not connectable. God has a way of working in circumstances that seem uncontrollable. God has a way when the sin and evil look unstoppable. God has a way when your life looks unpredictable. This is the kind of stuff he actually specializes in. The psalmist, David, he writes this, Psalm chapter 4, verse 8. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. What is he saying? Even when I sleep, God's got me. God's got you, fam. Even when you're sleeping, you don't even need to be awake for him to do his thing in your life. For him to orchestrate things, for him to pull some strings, for him to make the lucky things happen, for him to work out the coincidences. He's working on that stuff. And it's a reminder to all of us that when God seems silent, it doesn't mean he's not there. And that might be the thing we need to remember. That just because right now, in the crap that you're going through, just because right now it feels like God is silent, it doesn't mean he's not there. It might mean he's doing some things. And he's doing them behind the scenes. And he's, and he's doing some of his best work. Now it's easy to read this and say, that's in the Bible. It's thousands of years ago. Yeah, maybe God did some things then. But this is 2019 in America. Does God do that kind of stuff here and now, does he, does he still pull strings? Because you might read this and go, hey, that's, that turned out pretty well for Mordecai. That was pretty cool. Cool for Esther. It was good for them. But that doesn't help my marriage today. That doesn't help my job search because I'm unemployed and I need to find, I need to find something. And, and I don't care what God did. I mean, I care, but I don't care what God did for those people back then. I need to know, does God do anything now? And if God's going to do something now, how does that happen? And this is the piece of, this is the, piece of the story that, that, I, that I went through quickly that I want us to, to notice. Um, before this all starts, before Esther goes in there and says a word to the king, she prays for days and then she steps forward in obedience and, and moves forward and says, I, I, I'm going to go do the thing of where God is leading. And in that, God starts to do his work. I, I think there's, a, there's an issue in the church in America in particular, maybe in the West, where we have this disconnect between our faith and, um, and seeing God at work and, and seeing how he moves because we get very, uh, we want things to be so rational and reasonable and understandable and we want to demystify everything and we kind of want to science everything and we end up missing out on some of the, the glory and the majesty of how God does his work. And I think it's particularly in the West. I, 
I, I, I spoke a couple months ago here on a Sunday, and a woman came up to me afterwards, young woman, probably in her mid, mid to late 20s, and she said, thank you for saying what you said in your sermon today. She said, I'm from Brazil, and I'm going back there soon, and the kind of stuff, what you were saying today, I was talking about holiness, actually. She goes, what you were saying is what my generation needs to hear. We so badly need to hear this. She said, I'm seeing it in Brazil, and I'm seeing it happen, and I'm seeing God at work and moving and doing some things in my country, and people are coming to know the Lord there, and it's been uh, really powerful. And, and I've, heard, I've heard stories like that before of what God's doing in Brazil and in other places. My, my aunt and uncle are, are missionaries in North Africa, and um, they, you know, they, they send a newsletter, like, updates on what they're doing, and you know, it was like last year we baptized 800 people and started 200 house churches. I was like, what is going on over there? Um, that's so cool to see what God, what, what, what God is, is doing there. I'm, I have an incredible opportunity this week to um, meet with a guy on Tuesday. I'm spending about six hours with this guy named Shadonke Johnson. And he is a pastor of a church in Sierra Leone, West Africa. And in the past decade or more, um, that church has uh, reached one million people for Jesus. One million people, primarily Muslim, have become Christians in Sierra Leone because of this church. They have birthed 7,700 house churches out of, out of that church. And the guy who's the lead pastor of that, I'm, I'm going to... I'm going to spend some time with him this week and learn everything I can because I want to know what God is doing and, and, and how it works. Um, and I just wonder in the West why we don't see that here. Um, I, I know it has happened here. I, I, you, know, you see what God does in Persia thousands of years ago. Even in the Roman Empire, early Christianity spread like wildfire. You've seen sort of historic revivals throughout history. Even in America, God has done some things. There have been revivals in America. If you were to pick the places in America, picture the whole map, where would God choose to have a revival and like really do his work historically? Wouldn't you think that God would do his work like in the Bible Belt? Like somewhere around like Tulsa or something is like, okay, God shows up and he did it through the Bible about. No, historic revivals in America have happened in New England and California. Come on, God's got a sense of humor. California, you guys. God's like, oh, I'll use California to reach the whole country. Like, well, you want to start a revival? Okay, Azusa Street, we'll go right there in, in, in LA. Like, we're going to do it there. Like, God's up to something and he has done those things in this country as well. And so I, I was talking to a mentor of mine who, who knows the people in Africa and in some of these different places, India and China, where you're seeing uh, the people of God really growing. And, and, and I asked him, he's a, a pastor, mentor of mine, I said, um, what's different about our church or the church in America and pastors here versus what's going on there? What, what do you see? You've been around it more than I have. And he said, it's two things. I was like, all right, you know, like, you got the notebook. Like, what are the two things? Because that's so, that's so, like, <laughs> that's so American, right? Like, oh, I can make a list of this, and, like, can I put it in my planner? And, like, like take some notes and think about it, and maybe I'll write it in one of those moleskin journals. It'll be really, like, intense. Um, so he says, uh, two things, prayer and obedience. I put my pencil down. I'm like, come on. Like, what? <laughs> That's it? Prayer? 
He goes, yeah, these pastors pray more than you do. I'm like, dang, dude, you don't need to do that to me. Don't do that to me on a Tuesday morning. Um, he goes, yeah, they pray like their life depends on it because it does. They pray for, you know, half hour, hour. They're just, they're, they're in prayer a lot. And in the West, we're just not. And I think there's something, something to that. That's what launches Esther's story is that there was prayer there. And, and, and God started to, to do something. And, and, it, and it, was, it was intense prayer. And he said, it's not, it's not just prayer, it's also obedience. They do what God tells them to do. They pray until they hear God say move, and then they move. There's obedience there. This is what God, this is historically all, God has always used that. People who will connect to him and then who will do what he's calling them to do. That's what happens with, with Esther. That's what happens and is happening all, all over the world. Esther prays for three days. Have you ever prayed for three days about something like seriously like got into it, like begged God, like didn't eat, like weeping prayer with God, just contending and saying like, will you please move? Will you please do something? My guess is you probably haven't. Maybe some of you have. And the reason we haven't is because if I pray for three minutes and I don't get an answer, it feels like a waste of time, right? Well, God's supposed to like work, right? Like this is how we rub the lamp and then the genie comes and gives us the wishes. You say the prayer for a couple minutes and then we're done, right? Because we live in such a microwave culture. That's the way we like it. We want it here and now. Otherwise, it'll seem like oh, busy work. But have you really prayed like that? Have you begged God to move? Um, a lot of people feel like, I don't know how to do that. What would I even say? Prayer's intimidating. Good news, guys. We're having a prayer night here on, on November 13th. So not this week, but the following Wednesday at 2810, we're going to have a prayer night. And the idea is to pray, yes, but it's also to do some teaching on prayer so that we can take some of the intimidation out of it for people and go like, man, that's a thing we should be about as a church. So let's Come out here next Wednesday night. The opportunity is there for you. Come out to 2810 to our property and, and pray with us and, and hear some teaching on that and like deepen, deepen your own prayer life and, and, and connect and, and give it a shot. You may be clumsy at first. Man, you join, if you join a gym, you're clumsy at first. If you take your first ever yoga class, you're clumsy. If you go running for the first time, it's clumsy. That's fine. That's okay, but start somewhere. Come out next Wednesday night when we, we do this class because when we pray, it does something. All these things that we think are luck and coincidences, man, prayer moves things. William Temple said this, when I pray, coincidences happen, and when I don't, they don't. So the first step is prayer. The second step is obedience. When God says go, you go. God in history doesn't work through superstars. He works through regular people who are connected to him, and when he says go, they go, and they do what he says. My father-in-law was here some months back and he told me a story about, he's been doing work in Indonesia, and he told me a story about a, uh, a Bible college student there, a young man in his early 20s, and uh, he, he had to write this paper and it was towards the end of the term, and so he was writing this paper and he stayed up all night writing, and he was, it was hot out and he's writing all night writing this paper, and if you don't know, in, Indonesia I think is the largest population Muslim country in the world, um, and so it's a very Muslim country, not a lot of Christians there. And so he's writing this paper, and he gets, and he's been writing all night, and he gets up, and he has to deliver the paper, like, in person, by hand or whatever, to the college the next day. 
So he gets up, and he's been sweating all night and working on this thing, and he doesn't have a clean shirt on. And his roommate is there, and he says, hey, you can take my shirt if you want that white shirt right there. Just grab it, put that on, and you can wear that to class. So he grabs that white shirt, he puts it on, buttons it up, goes, jumps on his scooter, and heads towards the college. Well, while he's on his way towards the college, a downpour comes, and on his scooter, that's bad. So he pulls over, and if you've ever seen one of those, like, there's a lot of, in, in, in Asia, you see a lot of like a roadside sort of front porch kind of cafe or, or like little shops along the way. So he pulls over into one of these shops, so he's kind of standing under an, an overhang, just sitting, standing there waiting for the rain. It's just pouring down. Well, while he's there, the shop isn't open because it's still fairly early in the morning, um, but the door opens up a little bit, and there's an old man standing there. And he says, you know, can I help you? He goes, yeah, you know, just waiting here for the rain. And, and the old man says, why don't you come in inside and have tea? which is a, a, a custom, a tradition, you know, with hospitality. Why don't you come inside and have tea? So the, this young Bible college student, he goes, okay. And so he goes inside, and when he walks in, he sees a whole bunch of people. The shop isn't open, but there's a whole group of people, maybe 20 or so people just kind of hanging out there. And they're all just kind of looking at him. He's like, oh, hey. And so he gets some tea, and they start talking to him, tell, tell us about you. And, and um, students there, or, or Christians there, are trained how to share their faith. So when they talk about Jesus, they, they go like, okay, this is, it, 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 there's almost a formula to it. This is who I was. Jesus intervened in my life, and, and I came to know him. This is who I am now, and if you want, you can have that too. That's basically it, and they can say that in like two minutes, and it's practiced. And so he's sitting there talking to these people, and he thinks, I should tell them that thing about who Jesus and who I am and whatever. So he does. He tells them, two minutes. He goes, this is who I am, whatever. And, uh, and, and they go, and they go, oh, that's interesting. We're, we want to know about that. And he's sort of like, did they really hear me? Like, did, are they tracking with what I just said? I just told them, like, they can come to Jesus. And they're like, yeah, we're interested. So he kind of goes through it again and gets a little more elaborate. And they basically, this whole room of people are like, yeah, we're in. We, 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 want, we want the Jesus. Like, we're, we want in on this. And it's mind-blowing to this guy that this whole room of strangers is now like, we want to know about Jesus and we want to follow him. And he ends up asking the guy, the guy who invited him, he said, what's going on here? Like, why, why are you so interested in this? And the guy said, for months, I've been having these dreams, and I dream about Jesus. And Jesus is talking to me. And last night in my dream, Jesus said, a man in a white shirt is going to show up and tell you about me. So I called all my family and told them to come here because that was going to happen today. That's not 2,000 years ago. That was like last year in, in the modern world that God is doing something. And you can go, oh, that's a weird coincidence. It's, it's more than that. God is at work in dreams. God is at work through insomnia. God is at work in the books that we read, in the scripture. God is at work through our friends who point us to him. God is at work in your prayer group, in your small group, in any church gathering. All these things that we think are coincidences or luck. God is doing something and he still does it. Um, so let me just ask you this. What is one thing in your life right now that you really need to start praying about like crazy. And you want to, and just beg God and, and, and speak to him about. 
And then what is one area of your life where he is calling you to obedience and you've not been obedient? You've been like, I don't want to do it. What is that one area? And what are the steps you could take? Let's pray. God, it's, it really is incredible to see your hands, not just a long time ago, but even today, and to see how you orchestrate things and, and how you work through all sorts of circumstances to bring about your plan and your purpose. Um, God, i so encouraged by the example of Esther and what we see happening there uh, and what we saw happen there. And I pray that we would be people who pray and 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 ask for your favor and and who um, ask for your intervention and that we would also be people who are obedient, that we will listen and we will grow and we will change and we will follow wherever you're leading us to go. We will take the steps of obedience. God, I confess the times of my own prayerlessness, the times when I feel dry and um, feel like I'm going through motions and not... Uh, not pouring my heart into it, and so I, I, um, I, I ask that you you shape me as well, and and, and work in me so that um, my prayers will be uh, effective, and that um, and that we will see your kingdom expand here in America, in in Richmond, in Carytown, in in Henrico, in Hanover, in Chesterfield, and all these places around. We will see uh, your kingdom expand here. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.